Hello, welcome to Small Findings. I'm Jim Kang. I'm an artist and software developer, and like most people, I am awash in content. Articles, podcasts, and real-life events are shooting us in the face all the time, always. Lately, I've been isolating a few pieces of content each week and examining them closely. Sometimes examining something yields nothing, but when I come away with actual information, I share it with you here. All right, on to the findings. I don't know much about the Chinese economic model. I know that uh, they appear to have free markets while also appearing to not have uh, a lot of other freedoms often associated with that, like freedom of press, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of assembly. Uh, it's a very authoritarian place. Uh, so the way these two mesh was explained a bit in an article on open democracy that I found via my friend Toby. So to start with, uh, China started uh, dabbling with free markets in the 80s. Deng Xiaoping got it going and he called it uh, socialism with Chinese characteristics. Deng Xiaoping actually fell afoul of Mao sometime in the 70s, I think. Uh, and he was actually sentenced to hard labor and he somehow clawed his way back and basically became the supreme leader of China, which is very impressive uh, because Mao put a lot of people away. But anyway, uh, as a result of this, China has many, many characteristics that are very similar to capitalist economies. Most of his production is conducted privately uh, using privately owned means of production. And most decisions regarding production and pricing are made in a decentralized fashion. However, there is quite a bit of state control. Many of the companies, and by many, I mean companies that have a combined asset total of 26 trillion and revenue more than 3.6 trillion. This group of companies is like the largest economic entity in the world. These companies are controlled by the state-owned assets supervision and administration commission. I don't know if that's, it's easier to say the abbreviation, S-A-S-A-C, uh, or yeah, I think that's a little easier to say. So S-A-S-A-C can hire and fire the management of these companies. They can deploy and transfer resources across companies, and they can generate synergies across its holdings. So um, if you ever read the Timothy Zahn Star Wars books, which I think are the only good Star Wars books, uh, there's a revelation there that the Emperor, oh, that's Dr. Wily, the cat. Anyway, the Emperor used the Force in order to coordinate all the galactic forces uh, and that's why they were able to win so many battles, because they were all coordinated by like a single entity. Uh, and that, that's the idea here. So maybe that analogy was not helpful. So I'm going to move on. Also, any company with more than three Communist Party members must form a party committee within the company. And this party committee has significant influence over corporate decision making. Uh, this requirement includes not just private ch uh, Chinese companies, but foreign-owned firms. So if you have a foreign-owned firm, you have a branch of McDonald's or something like that, 
I imagine there are at least three Communist Party members working at McDonald's corporate in, in China. So they have influence over the corporate decision-making of McDonald's. The National Development and Reform Commission oversees industrial, energy, and pricing policy for key commodities that are not set by market forces. So these commodities include electricity, oil, natural gas, and water. It approves all large infrastructure projects and investments, even if the undertaker is a private or foreign company. So this is quite a bit of state control. The the effects of this are, you know, I, I can't compare it to what if they just had regular Western capitalism. But um, in 1978, when Deng Xiaoping came to power, 88% of the Chinese population lived in extreme poverty. In 2020, less than 2% live in extreme poverty. Still, income uh, inequality is among the highest in the world. And ironically, labor rights are weak. Uh, ironic because, you know, it's uh, purportedly a socialist country. Workers do not have freedom of association to form unions. So um, the power is, is not really in the hands of the proletariat. Uh, you know, China, as you may have suspected, is, is something entirely different from a classic socialist country. Although they do have universal health care. Speaking of large institutions whose economy I don't understand... I was surprised to learn that Harvard is taking cost-cutting measures. They're freezing salaries, they're freezing new hiring, and they're cutting back on spending. Some of the executives are taking pay cuts. This is reasonable for any organization given the freeze in the economy, but Harvard famously has a $40 billion endowment. It was at least $40 billion as of uh, March 2020, at least. And I imagine they just continue as they were, uh, by dipping into the endowment for making to make up for that shortfall. Uh, however, in their notice about this, the executives at Harvard addressed it by saying that uh, stock market dips have shrunk the endowment. By how much, I don't know. And I found out that there's stipulations on how the endowment can be spent. Uh, and these stipulations come from the donors. So the donors say things like, you can only use this for physics, or you can only use this for professors. Uh, most of the stipulations appear to be for specific programs, uh, specific departments, for professorships, fellowships, or undergraduate financial aid. Um, so it's possible that plenty still remains for operations, though I don't know how much but it's not this big undifferentiated pool of money like uh, as I imagined it was. One of the hardest aspects of the coronavirus to deal with is that treatment often requires ICU beds. There are a limited number of ICUs in the world. The pandemic threatens to overwhelm them. It already has in Italy, for example, where patients that need them are being turned away. That often means that they'll die. I didn't know what was involved in an ICU beyond ventilators. I've also heard a lot about intubation, but I didn't quite know what that was either. An article by Lana Sprawls in the London Review of Books explained it. ICUs are intensive care units, 
An ICU bed requires a ventilator, which pumps oxygen into patients who have trouble breathing. Ventilators are not self-sufficient, however. In order to get the oxygen, the ventilators need oxygen and air plumbing. The way the oxygen gets into the patient from the ventilator is via intubation. This is the process of putting a tube down a patient's mouth or nose and into the windpipe. This stops the airway from collapsing. Pressure from the ventilator keeps airways in the lungs from collapsing as well. ICUs need monitors for heart rate, blood pressure, blood oxygenation, breaths per minute, exhaled carbon dioxide levels, and temperature. Each bed also needs an infusion pump to administer medicine via IV drips. Many electrical sockets are needed for all of these things. Many drugs are necessary to have in good supply, including blood pressure maintenance drugs. The ICU needs to be able to run blood tests regularly, so you need a lab and technicians. They need a portable x-ray machine to check the lungs and various tubes periodically. Organ failure happens in severe cases, so medications and dialysis machines are also often needed. That is a lot of things, and I can see why it's so hard to set up ICUs. In his Quarantine Diary podcast, John Naughton spoke about his time working on the Conspiracy and Democracy Research Project at Cambridge University. He noted that conspiracy theories and theorists have always existed at every time and in every nation. However, they had little traction in mainstream society. The internet, and particularly social media, have helped them to gain exposure. In 2016, Trump was elected. Again, thanks to the internet in part. He was a very loud and very public birther. Uh, Birtherism was a conspiracy theory that Barack Obama was not actually born in the United States and therefore was an illegitimate president. So Trump became president and conspiracy theory became mainstream. Right now, at this very moment, right-wing pundits are repeating conspiracy theories about how Bill Gates created coronavirus. I thought about what Naughton said, and it occurs to me that at least two more world leaders are conspiracy theorists. Narendra Modi of India came to power by fomenting hatred of Muslims. He belongs to an organization called the RSS. Uh, this is not to be confused with um, the technology, really simple syndication. Uh, the RSS advances the view that all Muslims are traitors. Jair Bolsonaro of Brazil uh, he was a right-wing YouTube personality before he became president of Brazil. He claimed in 2019, when there was a forest fire surge in the Amazon, that uh, environmentalist non-government organizations had set the fires. Because, who knows. So, I just hit up DuckDuckGo and found that Orban, the authoritarian leader of Hungary, pushed a conspiracy theory last year that George Soros is controlling NGOs, media that is critical of him, and the European Union. And he's doing it in order to send immigrants into Hungary. Populist right-wing politicians benefit by blaming minorities for the problems of the majority. That's just how they work. I remember when I was a kid in suburban Illinois, a neighbor asked, why do Indian people always own subways? And here she was talking about Subway, the fast food restaurant chain, not the transportation systems. So she had this husband who was 
frankly dumb, like dumb enough that children noticed that he was dumb. And her dumb husband answered, because the government gives them money. My mom was aghast and said, no, they saved their money for years so that they could buy a business. Now, imagine that at that time, there was a president that would just say, yes, the quote, bad parts of government are just handing out subways to Indians instead of you, the hardworking white man. Keep me in power so I can protect you. I should note, though, that this guy was definitely not hardworking. Way back in January of this year, the volcano Tal in the Philippines erupted. There was this amazing photograph of it. It had lava spewing, but also had lightning shooting all over the place. It was a very Ronnie James Dio kind of scene. I wondered, though, why does lightning appear when lava is flowing? I found out that when volcanoes erupt, they create an eruption column and sometimes a lava fountain. Lava fountains are pretty much what you think they are. Lava spouting out of a volcano like a fountain. However, in my imagination, the fountain spews lava for hours, kind of like a water fountain in a mall. Tal's lava fountains were bursts that only lasted a minute each time. And they don't happen as early in the eruption as I thought they would. The lava fountains fired around 3 a.m. on January 13. This was half a day after the eruption started with the appearance of the eruption column. Eruption columns are these huge plumes that stand over the top of the volcano. The plumes are composed mostly of ash, but also include hot debris from inside the volcano, like bits of superheated rock. At 3 p.m. on January 13th, Tal's eruption column started, at, uh, started out about one kilometer high. Four hours later, it was 10 kilometers high. So uh, going back to the lava fountain, that appeared at 3 a.m., 3 a.m., 12 hours after uh, the eruption column started. So uh, it was going at the same time as uh, the lava fountains were going at the same time as the eruption column. And then two days after it started, the eruption was still going, and it maintained a column one kilometer high. It was not until the next day, the third day, that emissions were reported to be weak. So this is a lot of erupting, but only three minutes of lava fountain during all that. And back to the question of why lightning appeared with the lava fountain, at the time the lava fountains appeared, the eruption column, like I said, was still going strong. I couldn't find any, out anything about lava fountains causing volcanic lightning, but I did find out about eruption columns, or ash plumes as they are also called, causing volcanic lightning. So what I think it ha what happened at Tal was that the ash eruption was causing the lightning at the same time that the lava fountains were going resulting in a very photogenic scene. But why does ash erupting cause volcanic lightning? So for a long time, scientists did not have a proven explanation for why lightning appeared when volcanoes erupted. Then in 2013, scientists at Ludwig Maximilian University of Munich created volcanic lightning in a lab. They suspended particles of volcanic ash and argon gas then they forced that through a narrow tube. The idea behind this was to uh, create eruptions, not to create lightning. 
But when they watch these eruptions via a high-speed camera, and they slowed down what the high-speed camera photographed, they saw tiny lightning bolts. So what happens in this case is the ash particles charge each other by rubbing against each other under a lot of pressure while going through the tube. And then when they come out, they discharge that charge. In the case of a big volcano, um, it's the actual volcano that acts as the tube, and the ash particles, again, uh, are under high pressure, and they rub each other, and then they come out and they discharge their charge, and that discharge looks like a bunch of cool lightning. And in case you're wondering whether or not you need high heat, like uh, lava heat, in order to create volcanic lightning, heat was not necessary to create the lightning in the lab. So there you have it. That dramatic scene uh, with lightning and lava was in large part a coincidence. Uh, it mostly happened because the eruption column was going, creating static electricity and then releasing it. But also there was a lava fountain at the same time. I recently watched a documentary about people who want to make a space elevator. The image that comes to mind when I hear about a space elevator is the escalator to nowhere from The Simpsons. It was an escalator that uh, went up really high, and then people would just fall off of it when they got to the top because it didn't really go anywhere. The actual concept of the space elevator it is less ridiculous, but it remains no more real than the Simpsons escalator. The way a space elevator would work is you'd have an object in space. A cable would connect the Earth to the object. Centrifugal force from the Earth rotating would keep the object out in space, and it would keep the cable taut. That's a minimum viable space elevator. It's sort of like if you had a rock with a string around it and you were whirling around that's that rock and string. However, an engineer that looked at the feasibility of building a space elevator uh, back in 1975 found out that all materials available at that time were too heavy to not collapse on, on itself uh, when stacked that high. In the 90s, carbon nanotubes were developed. Carbon nanotube material can be 40 times stronger than steel. And that is currently what the space elevator community believes could work, but they haven't proven that it would work. In 2007, NASA held a contest in which they had a machine that would pull a short length of cable, and these cables are the entries in the contest. The machine would pull that short length of ca uh, cable to a tension required to support a space elevator. Every entry snapped. In 2014, some Google X companies started to design a space elevator, but they found out that no one had yet manufactured a carbon nanotube strand that was longer than one meter. So they gave that up. The other thing about carbon nanotubes is that they're hard to produce at scale. Well, that's it for this week. Do you have any small findings you want to share? Or do you want to say anything else about the podcast? If so, email smallfindings at fastmail.com. I'll link it in the show notes. Thanks for listening.
Thank <laughs> you.